Welcome to In and Around War, a podcast of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights on contemporary issues related to wars. Episode 2 discusses universal jurisdiction, which offers a promising ground for prosecuting perpetrators of international crimes. In a conversation with our alumnus Philip Grant, founder and director of Trial International. Welcome to the second episode of the Geneva Academy's podcast series, In and Around Wars. I'm Paola Gaeta, and I'm a professor of international law at the Geneva Graduate Institute, and I also teach international criminal law at the DLLM program of the Geneva Academy. Today, I'm co-hosting the episode with Anna Srovin Coralli. Welcome to the episode two of the Geneva Academy's podcast. I'm Anna Srovin Coralli, and I'm a teaching assistant at the Geneva Academy, as well as a PhD student at the Graduate Institute. Today's episode will be on international crimes and universal criminal jurisdiction. Before introducing our guest, it is perhaps useful to clarify what we mean by these two terms. Indeed, Paula. So international crime is a term that is frequently used to describe one of the so-called core international crimes, which include war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide and aggression. But at times, this term, international crime, can be also used to cover some other offenses, such as, for instance, torture and enforced disappearance. What really matters for an offense to be considered as international crime is that these crimes are punishable even when they are carried out in accordance with the national law or pursuant to the order of a government or a superior. Indeed, Anna. And since these crimes are often committed by authoritarian regimes against their own people or anyway by state officials in furtherance of the state policy, there is often the risk of impunity. In some other scenarios, the risk of impunity may stem from the fact that these crimes are so massive and widespread that the national courts of the state where the crimes are committed cannot cope with them. And it's really with the aim of addressing the risk of impunity in case of most serious crimes that in some circumstances, the courts of other states can step in and prosecute those responsible for these crimes under the so-called principle of universal criminal jurisdiction. To discuss the relevance of universal criminal jurisdiction for the punishment of international crimes, we have today the immense pleasure to host Philip Grant, the founder and the executive director of Trial International. This is a non-governmental organization fighting impunity for international crimes that is based in Geneva. And as all other guests in our podcast, Philippe is also an alumnus of the Geneva Academy. Welcome, dear Philippe. We are very happy to have you with us today. I'm very glad to be with you as well. Philippe, before we start with the interview, we would like to go back a few decades and recall the moment when the Spanish magistrate called Baltazar Garzón requested the arrest in London of the general Augusto Pinochet who was the former Chilean dictator, for crimes in Chile that 
Pinochet committed against his own people. So Pinochet was indeed arrested, but in the end never really transferred to Spain to face trial because he faced very serious health issues. Anyway, this moment of issuing the arrest warrant was a historical moment for the fight against impunity. Let's hear an extract from a newsreel published when the General Pinochet was arrested based on the Spanish warrant. Viernes 16 de octubre, la noticia llega desde Londres. Esa noche dos oficiales de la policía británica llegan a la London Clinic, donde Pinochet se recupera de una cirugía. Ahí lo notifican de su detención, ordenada por el juez Baltasar Garzón, por crímenes de lesa humanidad. Yo mantuve una posición interpretando los tratados internacionales en el área de la jurisdicción universal. Se está violando la inmunidad diplomática. Y en segundo lugar, nosotros pensamos que las personas en Chile tienen que ser juzgadas por los tribunales chilenos. Los cargos se amplían a genocidio, tortura y terrorismo internacional. Garzón pide la extradición a España. Los opositores a Pinochet celebran en Chile, Londres, también en Madrid. Philippe, the case of Pinochet is indeed known as the example of universal jurisdiction. It was also very controversial because Augusto Pinochet was not present on Spanish territory at the moment when the Spanish authorities requested his arrest in London. So what do you think about the relevance of this case and more generally about universal jurisdiction understood in such uh, broader terms? Before the arrest of General Pinochet in October 1998 in London, universal jurisdiction was a principle, but it was really theory more than practice, principle that lay dormant in international law and that just needed a case to be uncovered. And the Pinochet case, which now we refer to as the Pinochet precedent, was the one that put universal jurisdiction on the map. There's been a lot of talk, a lot of discussions, a lot of articles and books written about the legal niceties around the, the Pinochet case. I don't think for me it is that important to go back to this precedent and analyze the legal details. It's more the impact that the case has had on a number of people in the academic world to some extent, but also in the NGO sector from the Pinochet precedent arose a number of organizations. And to be very honest about that, the Pinochet precedent was for me the trigger that pushed me to found uh, Trial International. And I think for a lot of people of my generation, it really put on the map the possibility to use the law in an imaginative manner and to have it as an active, effective tool to combat impunity. Yes, indeed, and it was highly symbolical because of the fact that what was finally done was the arrest of a former president and dictator of a country, and therefore this was not really something that was done before, no? It was the first time. It was the first time, and, and the case never went to court. And I think that's one of the lessons. It's not because you lose a case that you cannot make huge steps ahead. Without the Pinochet precedent, we would not probably have had all the investigations and trials that have happened since, some of which have landed former heads of states in, in prison for life, and some which are still you know, ongoing and probably picking up pace in the recent years. 
actually back to the question I've asked, not only the importance of Pinochet, there was indeed the second question, what do you think of the, let's say, broad understanding of universal jurisdiction? Because it's true that Pinochet was not finally transferred to Spain, but if I'm not mistaken, he stood trial in Chile in the end. I think he died before he could be, he died he could before, be judged. Yeah, he died before, but the immunity were lifted in Chile. But it is a fact that in the, the legal debates, there has been a lot of discussion concerning the fact that the Spanish law at the time uh, uh, allowed um, the possibility to ask for the extradition and request the arrest of a person who was not present on Spanish soil and the accused had committed crimes against own people. They were victims of double nationality, both Chileans and Spanish, but the legal basis for requesting redress was really universal criminal jurisdiction. You have a number of situations that are different. Some international conventions, the UN 1984 Convention Against Torture, or the 2009 UN Convention Against Enforced Disappearances, make it actually compulsory for states to exercise jurisdiction when a suspect is present on the territory, even though the crimes were committed abroad. For other crimes, international law does not provide for the obligation to investigate and eventually prosecute the suspects, but leave that to national law to define what the conditions can be. International law you know, hovers above these cases and provides for a number of principles, some of which are based in human rights conventions and must be, of course, respected by states, the rights of the defense, for example. Others are in the realm of immunities that must also be respected. But for the rest, it's up to states to decide how and when they will and, and can exercise universal jurisdiction. In Switzerland today, the presence of the suspect would be necessary to open up a case. In France, the presence of the suspect is important to open up a case on torture or enforced disappearances, but the residence is required for war crimes. But other states have defined it otherwise, and some can open up investigations without even the suspect being present. It's another thing to understand whether the suspect must be present if the case goes to trial. But to open up and starting to exercise its jurisdiction, it's up to the states to, to define the conditions. You clarified very well that universal criminal jurisdiction has no single definition, but rather can mean different things. And at the end of the day, it really depends on the state how they decide to assert it in its criminal laws. Now, I want to bring you back to the moment when you said that the Pinochet case somehow triggered the creation of Tri-International. So this makes me think that you do perceive universal criminal jurisdiction as highly important. And I wonder whether you could explain to us and to our listeners why do you think universal criminal jurisdiction is so important? Why does it matter? I think you've hinted at that a little bit with the introduction. Crimes under international law are unfortunately widespread, and the number of cases that are being brought to court are very little, uh, represent a fraction, a small percentage of uh, the crimes. If you only relied on the states where the crimes were committed, those numbers would be ridiculously low. Universal criminal jurisdiction along with other mechanisms, international courts, for example, allows to bridge a little bit of that impunity 
gap. And I think it holds a lot of potentialities for victims who are frustrated at home and, and who cannot see justice being delivered in their own country to take a look outside and rely on systems of law which can, under certain circumstances, deliver justice for the crimes they have suffered. Philippe, I would like to take the opportunity of your lapses of the frustration of the victims abroad for obtaining justice where you meant uh, frustration at home. But there is perhaps uh, uh, the detractors of universal criminal jurisdiction often also make the case that it's uh, highly difficult for courts in foreign countries to prosecute crimes which were committed far away because of the problem of evidence gathering and other obstacles that might be faced by the prosecuting authorities. What do you think of these critical remarks? I think we would be lying to ourselves if we thought universal jurisdiction was just a, a magic wand and, and could uh, bring about, you know, dozens and hundreds of cases and rulings. They are complicated cases. They do not unfold in the same way that national cases happen. That said, national investigators and prosecutors often have to deal with cases that do not involve international crimes, but that have elements of extraneity attached to them. In the economic realm, there's a lot of cases of corruption of foreign officials with the need to cooperate with another country, with the need to maybe go on the ground and access witnesses and evidence that is not within your own borders. So that, that is not exceptional per se. What is often exceptional is the fact that the country where the crimes were committed will not participate in any way and, and will maybe strongly react to a state opening up an investigation against one of its nationals. What is very complicated sometimes is that the victims might still be located abroad. And there's, of course, a security risk attached to the case unfolding. So there's a number of issues that are really complicated. How to deal with them? I think there's two solutions to a large problem, but two pieces of the puzzles are first, setting up of war crimes unit, of specialized units within the judiciary within the investigating authorities of the countries exercises universal jurisdiction, meaning basically that you have people who are specializing in that type of investigations and, and who can understand foreign contexts better than just an ordinary investigator or a prosecutor, and that can link up and cooperate with foreign authorities in these complex investigations. So I think We've seen in countries who have set up and who are staffing correctly war crimes units that actually they yield a lot of results. A lot of cases and a lot of convictions have been obtained in countries functioning war crimes units. And the second point is the role of NGOs, which is absolutely crucial in these cases. When you take a look at those cases that have gone to trial, most of the time NGOs have been the initial trigger to these cases. The Rwandan cases in France have most of them been triggered by the local French NGO. The Liberian cases have been supported by Civitas Maxima and other Geneva-based NGOs. In Germany, the Syrian cases are also supported by the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights and their Syrian partners. And we at trial also have you know, close to 20 ongoing cases. And we have, as NGOs, the capacity to go and investigate on the ground in a much more flexible manner 
than what authorities can do. We are in a privileged situation that we don't need to have necessarily the agreement of the state where the crimes were committed to go on the ground and bring back, you know, expert testimonies, witness statements, organize even the coming of, of witnesses to meet with the prosecutors and, and the investigators or to be present at trial, but also to organize, for example, psychosocial support to be there at the side of the victims who you know, have gone through horrendous episodes in their life and who might fear suffering re-traumatization. It's very important that private organizations be at their side to support them in their quest for justice. So I think war crimes units and NGOs make it a little bit more feasible for such cases to, to go ahead. However, there is also some discussion about the use of universal criminal jurisdiction against the former leaders of even powerful countries. We know very well the story of the changes in the legislation in Belgium when the law on universal jurisdiction, there was an attempt to use it to, to bring to account leaders of powerful countries, Westerners, but also non-Western countries. So don't you think that there is a risk of having only the low-cost defendants facing trials under the principle of universal criminal jurisdiction with those in power escaping justice? I like to say that we have today universal criminal jurisdiction 3.0. Universal jurisdiction 1.0 was what happened after Pinochet. The hope that it was at last possible to bring just about any perpetrator to justice. And then that created a backlash in Spain, in Belgium in particular, Western leaders who were, especially from the US or Israel, accused of massive human rights violations, put a lot of pressures on these countries to change their law. And we fell into universal jurisdiction 2.0, which were those years where nothing moved or, or very little. And we've seen a revival of universal jurisdiction, I think, with the Syrian conflict to a large extent, where also NGOs might have shifted a little bit their focus, going back to the basic, thorough investigations, well-prepared cases, not just going for headlines and trying to target heads of states and heads of governments. And we know that will never happen. We know they have immunity under international law, so those cases anyway cannot move ahead at all. But being more modest in the expectations of what universal jurisdiction might bring, setting our goals in a pretty distant future. I think it is by constructing one good case at a time, making sure states can rule on them, can lay out the principles, making case law, jurisprudence emerge, and making it more and more possible in the end, to show also that you have now what it takes. The tools exist not only to go after the small fishes, but slowly to go up the chain of command. Universal jurisdiction has allowed for pretty powerful people to be investigated and brought to court. Hissen Habre, former head of state of Chad, was sentenced in Senegal to life in, in prison based on that principle. We now have a number of uh, ministers, in, including in trials case load, that will at some point be, be brought to justice. There's a former minister of interior from the Gambia that is awaiting his trial, a former minister of defense of Algeria. Your response would probably be, that's, that's very, very well. What about Western leaders? And that's a difficulty. That's one of the big challenges. I think the NGOs, at least active in this field, 
are of the mind that we still have to obtain some of the framework, set it out, that it can at some point be able to take on more important leaders and military or civil from Western countries. We're starting to see a shift, I think, in the way some countries are investigating corporations. So citizens from their own states, you have the Lafarge case in, in France for crimes committed in Syria, the Lundin case in Sweden for crimes committed in, in South Sudan. You have a number of investigations ongoing in Switzerland against Swiss citizens for their participations in the crime of pillage in Libya, in the DRC, in the Gambia. They're all Western citizens. They're economic actors. They're not political or military leaders yet. And we've seen a number of low-level perpetrators, even in the US, being brought to trial and being sentenced for war crimes. Going up the chain of command and bringing more senior Western leaders, that's something you know for the next decade or even beyond, but we'll get to there. So let's hope to have a universal jurisdiction 4.0 no? that goes in the right direction, as you suggest. Well, there will be 0.5, I mean 5.0. 5.0, yes. So, Philip, which tribunals, domestic or international criminal tribunals, are better placed to adjudicate cases of international crimes? And to give you a very concrete example, we have heard in the news, but also in different academic discussions, that since the Geneva Conventions lied states to prosecute war crimes on the basis of universal criminal jurisdiction, that any states in the world could basically prosecute war crimes that have been committed in Ukraine. So what I wonder is whether you believe that this is desirable or is the International Criminal Tribunal better placed to do the job in this regard? We've seen with the Ukraine conflict and the Russian aggression, a lot of states stepping up to the plate and announcing that they will resort to universal jurisdiction. Romania, Lithuania, Poland, Slovakia, a number of countries have already announced that they would open up investigations. Without a suspect, you don't go very far. So I think the efficiency of those investigations and eventual prosecutions will be pretty challenging, at least in the short run. The Germans are still putting on trial former Nazi, 102-year-old guards in concentration camps, you know, 80 years after the fact. Those cases are here to last, but I don't think necessarily at this point you will have a lot of efficiency from universal jurisdiction with regards to judging Russian or Ukrainian personnel who might have committed war crimes. There's another obstacle, which is the fact that some people enjoy immunities under international laws, basically that would apply to the head of state uh, from Russia. He is immune from being prosecuted by other states. Only the ICC, the International Criminal Court, could actually deal with the case that would involve Mr. Vladimir Putin. And I think when you're talking about that level of people, it is probably much more legitimate to have an international court being able to investigate and, and take on those cases. Uh, but let's not forget that there's a third piece of the puzzle with regards to accountability, which is the country of the place where the crimes were committed. Ukraine has already started to investigate you know, a few handful of cases out of the 30,000 cases that have been reported already, and trials have already been held. So I think there's a mix. You should not oppose one to the other. You should keep in mind the time factor. What we say today might be totally irrelevant in a month, and it will certainly be completely different 
in a year, in a decade, or in 30 years from, from today. But Philip, why do you think it's challenging to resort to universal criminal jurisdiction provided for the Geneva Conventions of 1949 in the case of war crimes committed in a conflict such as the Russian and Ukraine conflict? Why do you think it is challenging? I think the main challenge is to get your hand on the suspect. I haven't heard for the moment that there are Russian military personnel, you know, enjoying vacation on the Spanish coast. Were that to be the case, I believe very strongly that NGOs will make sure cases are being brought and eventually treated by national authorities. It does not mean that it's impossible to adjudicate on cases while a conflict is ongoing. Germany, for example, has brought to trial a number of cases uh, stemming from the Syrian civil war, including from both sides, from the governmental side and, and from the rebel groups. So it's not per se an impossibility, but without the suspects, your cases don't go very far. And the trying of the prisoners of war without respecting the legal standards set out by the Geneva Conventions can be a war crime in itself. That could be, give rise to individual responsibility for those taking part in, in these trials. Philip, maybe just a very quick clarification. What is your opinion on why really what has facilitated domestic prosecutions in Germany with regard to the crimes committed in the context of the Syrian civil war? What has been decisive? Was it really the, the contributions of the NGOs, non-government organizations, which you already mentioned, or was there something else that you would highlight? On Syrian cases that unfolded in Germany, I think it's the sheer fact that you had so many people fleeing Syria and ending up in Germany. Victims, first of all, were able to testify and you know, to, to give evidence about crimes committed. But in the flow of people that arrived in, in Germany, you had perpetrators and you had the possibility, especially with open source investigations techniques, to find these people. And when everybody's present on your own soil, it makes it a little bit easier for investigators and prosecutors to move ahead with cases. Now, I'm not going to say that Germany is the only player in the field of universal criminal jurisdiction. You have a lot of countries taking that very seriously. I mean, Sweden is a big player. They just finished in mid-July the trial of the Iranian national. Iran is a pretty big regional power. The guy uh, was sentenced to life in prison for his participation in the massacre of prisoners in 1988. Uh, the guy is very much suspect. The condemned, Hamid Nouri, is very much a product of the regime still in place. That case was very interesting as well. He just happened to travel through the country. He wasn't even a resident. They snatched him at the airport. That's because you had a functioning war crimes unit, because you had NGOs in the background and dedicated lawyers ready to submit their evidence. There's a number of conditions that had to be met for this case to go ahead. But you have a number of cases unfolding in the Netherlands, in, in Belgium, in Finland, in Spain, in, in Switzerland. I think even in Italy, there's been torture cases, at least in the recent past. A country like Hungary, of all places, has held a universal jurisdiction trial for crimes committed in Syria. And we are also seeing, to a lesser extent, countries from the global south starting to work on similar issues. South Africa in the past, today Argentina 
has been taking on some cases from Myanmar. Argentina also has a case concerning Spanish citizens. And you see there the dynamics going around. People from the north being investigated because their country is not doing what it should, being investigated by a country from the global south. I think that's really interesting. So let's not focus on just one country. It's a shared responsibility of the international community. And we've seen that responsibility being shared by an increasing number of countries, resulting in the past years in an increased number of convictions. There has been dozens of people convicted by national courts based on the principle of universal criminal jurisdiction. But still, there is a fact that there are many states which really do not support universal criminal jurisdiction as a principle to prosecute these international crimes. And they are equally from the West and the not West countries. So there is the US usually, and but also China and other powerful countries which do not support universal criminal jurisdiction. What do you think of this situation? Well, most countries, at least on principle, support universal jurisdiction when they ratify international conventions that provide for universal jurisdiction. Then when it gets concrete and you have one of your own that is being targeted, especially when it's a powerful person, it becomes a little bit different. And no, I agree with you. Dual standard is something that we must fight against. And I think I try to explain the way in which NGOs kind of operate today. I don't want to overgeneralize, but that's at least my position is there's a lot of groundwork still to do before the system can be able to take on really more powerful people. But what we're seeing through the number of cases that have been already channeled through national courts is that universal jurisdiction today is really a thing. It's not just a principle. It's a tool that is efficiently used. It's a tool that is gaining in attractivity, that is gaining in legitimacy. The European Court of Human Rights has ruled on a number of cases saying there's no problem with universal jurisdiction, provided you respect all the other you know, standards. The UN treaty bodies often refer to universal jurisdiction as a tool that must be implemented by states. Around Ukraine conflict and the Russian aggression, there's a lot of talk about how universal jurisdiction can be resorted to. So I think we're at a moment where this revival is really starting to go over the usual suspects, the usual countries that have been using universal jurisdiction. And it's kind of starting to spread. And our role as NGOs is to make sure that it's not just you know, talks, but, but also at some point cases and that they be taken seriously. Indeed, Philippe, I totally agree with you because the problem is not the principle of universal criminal jurisdiction that exists since Grotius, and therefore it's an old principle and it is no problem when it is applied for crimes such as terrorism or piracy or drug trafficking. The problem is when it is applied and used to go after crimes committed by those in power or having a political component. That's the big issue rather than the principle itself. And uh, before concluding our interview, dear Philippe, I know that this is a special year for the organization you have established, Trial. It's a birthday to this year. How old is it, your organization? So we just turned 20. Wow. I often make a laugh out of the fact that we are senior to the ICC. <laughs> I think we have a bit, a bit three weeks in advance, so... 
we're the senior organization in the room when you compare us to the International Criminal Court. But yes, 20 years. And maybe again, back to the Universal Jurisdiction 3.0 reference. It's taken a lot of time to get these cases to go to court. We currently have one trial ongoing in Germany, a member of Gambian Death Squad. But we have a number of cases that are just about ripe now to, to go to court. We've heard last month the new attorney general of Switzerland going public about the fact that he was about to send an indictment to the Swiss Federal Criminal Court saying that there might be others in the pipeline to follow up soon. So this is really a very, very interesting time if you're interested by universal jurisdiction. And I would encourage any one of your listeners who want to be kept up to date to sign up to a newsletter on the website, because you will get through that some information about universal jurisdiction, but also be made aware of the publication of our yearly report. We have a special yearly report called the UJAR, the Universal Jurisdiction Annual Review, that goes over all of these cases year after year with our NGO partners. So do sign up and you'll receive it in the mail. And Philip, you told us a bit already of the reason that the pushed you to establish trial 20 years ago. In a way, you mentioned Pinochet had an effect on the decision to establish such a new non-governmental organization. But do you have any other personal reason that you can find behind the decision to establish and to start this great adventure? You do need to store some fuel I mean, we're all talking about energy crisis, but you need to, to store psychological fuel to be able to, you know, set your sight on a pretty far away goal. For me, it's essentially the plight of the victims, the testimonies we hear from them. And actually through universal jurisdiction, I've experienced that the most fascinating testimonies from, from victims who out of courtrooms tell you, you know, this is justice that is all of a sudden being embodied. I remember a particular victim, I'm not going to tell you all the details, but who has suffered sexual violence and who was confronted to the person, you know, in charge of, 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 of the system that made the sexual violence possible. And the prosecutor at some point was listening to the testimony of that victim and the suspect tried to interrupt. And the prosecutor looked at the suspect and said, Shh, shut up, basically, I'm listening to the victim. And it was amazing for that person. The victim came out of the testimony, basically saying, I had like 10 years of psychotherapy to go over what happened to me. What happened in this room today was much better than those 10 years. And for me, it was like, wow, this is really justice being made concrete. Thank you, Philippe. And I think you've left a very strong message. Unfortunately, we have reached almost the end of this really fascinating and inspirational interview. So what I want to ask you at this point is whether you do recall from the times when you were a student at the Geneva Academy, any anecdote or any story from that moment and you would be willing to share with us. I'm not prepared for that one. It was a complicated time for me. In 2005, I did my LLM with the predecessor institution to the academy, the QD. And I was working as a lawyer in a law firm. I was also a substitute alternative judge at the administrative tribunal in Geneva. And I had trial on the side. So I was basically running four different missions, which each of them you know, should take me at least... 60 or 70%. So it was tiring. It was awful, but it was fascinating at the same time. And I see a lot of people from my 
group of students was still around. I mean, the director of the academy uh, was one of my fellow conspirators at the time. And one of the board members of trial was another one who studied when I was there. So I think the academy has given a lot of opportunities for lawyers with a sense of engagement to, you know, put that into practice and to continue in their everyday life. And I think that's a real privilege that we all had. This is fantastic, Philip. And thank you for this great interview. I would like to remind you that uh, for those who wanted to know about the materials that we mentioned during the episode, all the relevant information will be found in the show notes of this podcast. And also let me remind you that all the episodes of the Geneva Academy's podcast are available on the website of the Geneva Academy, as well as on the usual platforms, iTunes, Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and so on and so forth. So if you don't want to miss any episode, please subscribe to our podcast. Bye-bye and stay tuned. You've been listening to In and Around Wars, a podcast of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and stay tuned for more inspiring conversations with Geneva Academy alumni. You can also check the Geneva Academy's website at www.geneva-academy.ch to find more resources and upcoming events on contemporary issues of international humanitarian law and policy.